Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, uh, alone with Ian, our faithful producer, uh, off in different places, including Washington, D.C. We will find Rosa Brooks uh, at Georgetown University. We will find Ed Luce ostensibly at the Financial Times, probably <laughs> at a pub, who knows exactly where, and off waiting to greet our president at the airport in the United it, Kingdom. Indeed, I am standing at the airport. I've been camping out here for a day and a half. Holding her tiny baby Trump balloon. <laughs> uh, diapered. Uh, diapered baby Trump balloon is Corey Shockey of double I double S. Um, guys, it's such like a big foreign policy week. Uh, everybody's talking today, uh, Monday, the day we're taping this about the Supreme Court. But on... Um, uh, as soon as the president's done with that, he gets on a plane, he flies off to the NATO summit. Um, he's already started to irritate the people he's going to meet with there with uh, hostile tweets. He then gets to go to the United uh, Kingdom uh, and uh, avoid people as best he can, since everybody seems to be ready to protest. He can also avoid the foreign secretary who quit today. The foreign secretary, the Brexit secretary, the assistant Brexit secretary. Um, and then he spends the weekend golfing and then he gets to meet with Vladimir Putin. Um, it's just like foreign policy all the time. And so I think it's our, you know, sort of responsibility to all the deep state radio nerds to discuss each phase of this trip. Um, and so let's start <laughs> with you, Corey, over where you are. Um, and let's just talk about the NATO summit. How do you think the president's doing setting that all up? Uh, I think the president's doing a terrible job setting that all up. There's a seven in 10 probability that this whole thing's going to play out like the G7 summit where the president gets super irritated at all these judgy uh, liberal order types who think the rules apply to him and and really just wants to go play with authoritarians who have no expectations of his behavior being any better than theirs is. Um, well, that's, that's pretty harsh. Ed, surely you have something more positive to say about what the president's doing. Well, I, I, I hold out the sneaking hope that on day four of his scheduled trip to the United Kingdom happens to be the day of the World Cup final, soccer final. Um, and of course, England will be will be in it because uh, they will beat Croatia. And uh, therefore, um, he will sneak over 
to watch the World Cup, along with zero dignitaries from the British government or royal family, because they are boycotting the Russian World Cup. Uh, uh, it'll be an interesting test to see whether they actually boycott it if England do make it to the final. Um, but I suspect that Boris Johnson won't. Um, won't boycott it and will be there. And I suspect there will be a, an irresistible Trump pull to be on the grandest stage in the world that day. And of course, that's where Vladimir Putin would be. Is that a silver lining? No, it's just a sort of whimsical thought. Well, that, I, yeah, I agree. That was kind of a whimsical thought. Rosa was kind of, you know, clutching at straws the way I look <laughs> at it. Um, how, what, 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 what are your little birdies telling you about the NATO summit? Um, you know, so the only possible silver lining would be that it, it through, through some amazing uh, lineup of the stars, it could end up being not quite as catastrophically awful as everybody thinks. You know, that, that Trump might behave himself every now and then he behaves for short periods of time. Um, that he won't actually, you know, say anything overtly insulting about NATO, about Europe, or about any of the uh, NATO uh, ministers or representatives who are actually present. Um, and then he won't say anything overtly fawning to Putin and so forth, in which case we will get another rash of media reports that says that, you know, Trump Trump made a statesmanlike appearance and that he's finally grown into his role as president and leader of the free world. Um, really? That would be the, that would be the best possible outcome, although that would off, be awfully depressing in and of itself. For Can we please ways. get a whole nother <laughs> avalanche of people talking about how he finally became presidential this day? Oh yeah, I love it when those things happen. I do too. Those are my, some of my very favorites. Well, it's, it just shows us that the bar has now become so low for him that if he doesn't actually say something like NATO is led by a bunch of low IQ people or something, um, everybody will say he was so dignified. He really, really came into his <laughs> <Right>. own. <laughs> yeah, that, too believable. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, th this was, you know, actually not as bleak as I thought, because, you know, when I got up this morning and I started seeing the tweets heading out talking about how the NATO allies are taking advantage of us and this alliance is only really good for them. It doesn't do anything for us. And they're ripping us off on trade. I kind of thought that was a bad tone with which to start the week. <laughs> that's just that's just setting expectations. <laughs> so can I brag about a piece of outstanding research done by the data trolls here at the IISS? Because they went back and calculated what proportion of U.S. defense spending can actually be ascribed to our obligations under the NATO treaty. And anybody care to guess? So $630 billion a year defense budget. Guess, guess, guess. Uh, Very low, I'm going to guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm with Rosa. 5% of total U.S. defense spending goes to uh, paying for common NATO infrastructure, the AWACS, the troops stationed in Europe, the NATO Reassurance Initiative, training for NATO allies. 
$30 billion. That's about 5% of the U.S. defense budget and roughly comparable to what Britain, France, and Germany spend on defense. So when President Trump starts stomping and hissing and banging his shoes on the table about how Europeans don't do enough, please remember that the United States does for commits about the same proportion of our defense spending to Europe as Europe. Corey, European stop trying states. to confuse this situation with facts. Well, let me let me sorry, throw another. Sorry, Rosa. Let me throw another fact out there. I'll just take a poll. You can do this by a show of your hands. How many people here think that the the uh, target of spending two percent uh, is a target for NATO spending or a target? And and how many think it's a target for defense spending? Exactly. I can see by your hands that all of you realize that the 2% target is a defense spending target. It's not a NATO spending target. If they up their, I mean, it's, there, there is this uh, sort of distortion, I think, that's being peddled a little bit by the president, that that's what they owe NATO. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. The president's treating it like a protection racket instead of free countries committing to each other that all of us have other pressing demands on us, but because we care about each other's security, we're going to try and step forward in this way together. That's a very different tone. That's a very different um, context for thinking about this than the president who makes it sound like he's shaking them down. The, 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 one of the numbers that NATO, that Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, has been putting about is that since the Wales-NATO summit of 2014, where America's partners agreed to increase their defense spending, there's been, in real terms, $85 billion increase in European NATO defense spending. So it's set against the number that your people came up with at um, IISS, Corey. That, that's that's a, an interesting number. Yeah. So... That's, but that's only part of the president's argument, right? Part of the argument is they're not carrying their weight. Part of the argument is they're ripping us off on trade. Um, and that seems to be uh, something that's unlike. I mean, that caused all the tension around the G7 summit. Uh, what's the likelihood that it doesn't come up in this context? Zero. There is zero likelihood it does not come up in this context. The president's already sent letters to all of the NATO, or to at least some of the NATO allies, explaining to them how much they owe us. I um, think there's another reason, if, if, I, if I can interrupt for a second, another reason why uh, there's zero chance he's not going to bring up the European, the fairly modest European trade surplus compared to the China trade surplus. And that is that he's, I think, reached... Um, a pretty clear political and diplomatic limit right now in the escalation of the trade war with China, um, partly because of the North Korea linkage uh, and partly because of uh, very strong feedback he's getting from Republican donors here. Whereas on Europe, uh, he's not getting anything like that feedback. And I think his eye that, that water will find a channel and that channel is going towards Europe. It's going to be Europe's going to be the target of the trade, uh, most of the trade um, rhetoric and actions, I think, in the coming weeks. Uh, and I think the coming days provide the perfect forum for that. You think it's going to get any worse? You think, he'll do, you think he'll do the auto stuff? 
I think he'll definitely do the auto stuff, yes, uh, on national security grounds, the 232 stuff. Mm, wow. Rosa, you know, wouldn't that, you know, potentially cause a problem in places where they make these cars in the United States? Well, I mean, that's that's the question, right, is is um, does this and, and more accurately, probably when does this start to hit Trump voters in their wallets? And does the president, does the White House come up with some other magic to sort of shield them just long enough to, you know, get the next set of votes in. I mean, because, because yeah, I, most economists, uh, economists who do not work for Donald Trump say this is going to hurt. Uh, it's going to, and, and, and the people it's going to hurt are disproportionately going to be people in, in Trump country, if you will, in, in geographic areas uh, and demographic groups that, that provide a substantial portion of his base. Um, you know, and, you know, on the one hand, I, I actually think that there's plenty of evidence that Americans don't vote their pocketbooks, you know, contrary to the the old, you know, it's the economy stupid line that there, there's lots of evidence that Americans, for better or for worse, are, are often willing to overlook short term uh, uh, financial hardship and financial hits um, for what they think is, is a, a longer term vision that makes sense, you know. So maybe his base will be willing to say, well, yeah, it's going to hurt us in the short term, but it's all in the pursuit of making America great again. It just we're just going to tighten our belts for a while. I don't know. I think I think that's a good question. You know, do they turn on him when it starts to hurt or are they sufficiently dedicated to uh, the Trump agenda that they're willing to just suck it up? Um. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of the answer to that question or part of the response to that question has got to be how much does it matter, you know, if he only won by very little? In other words, how many of them have to give up on him before it has a real political cost? No, that, that that's right. And, and one way to think about both the midterms and the next election is that, you know, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Um, more people more people then and more people in November 2018 and more people in November 2020 are likely to be democratically inclined and that this all comes down not to, you know, who has more support in the abstract, but who can get their base out to the polls versus who can suppress the other party's base more effectively, something that I'm sorry to say the Republicans have been rather good at, uh, you know, so, so, so I, yes, it, it doesn't take, Trump won by such a tiny margin, even in the Electoral College, um, that if, if all of this does is just suppress turnout in his base, it could make the difference. Well, I don't, okay, so let's, let's shift the focus a little bit, because we've got so much stuff to cover here. Uh, and I would like to sort of drop by North Korea if we could at the end. Um, he, the president won by a tiny margin in the United States, um, which is where he lives. By the way, in, in Manhattan, I think he got 10% of the turnout or something like that. <laughs> is so, that right? Yeah, so it was 10 <laughs> like, or 15. So the, the closer you are to Donald Trump, the less you want <laughs> the, to vote The less likely, <laughs> right. I think he only got 50% of Jared and Ivanka, and we don't know, we don't, we don't know which 50%. But... But but let me turn to uh, Corey and Ed here because you're closer to this. 
How do you think Donald Trump would do in a vote in the UK when he gets to the UK? What if they voted on him? Would he get a rousing support from the UK, which actually has a Tory government at the moment? So as you guys know, I skipped home to my native land of the great golden state of California last week to celebrate our rebellion against tyranny. And I was so happy to skip back here in time for the president's visit because the vibrant, diabolical creativity of British civil society is just going to be on full-throated display when the president comes here. I can hardly wait to see what castigations, impersonations, parodies that they dream up. They've already, um, the discussion is already about the giant, like Thanksgiving Day balloon of the president in diapers that's gonna be flying over parliament. It, it, it'll be great fun, only if it doesn't lead to the collapse of the liberal world order. No, according to Ed, the world order, liberal world order <laughs> collapsed already. Didn't you? Didn't you write a book called, you know, the retreat, uh, the, the retreat of Western liberalism? But I yeah, thought it was uh, throw another shovel full of dirt on Western liberalism. Was that the, or, 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 or a pair of wellies? Uh, yeah. I'm Western, sure. a visit to history's dustbin where we shall find Western liberalism. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm less, or was when I wrote the book, slightly less uh, suicidal than that. Um, but uh, look, Trump's, Trump's turning up in Britain. I, I feel no pressure, by the way, on Corey's very kind words about my, uh, uh, my, my nation's parodic creativity. <laughs> I'm not going to try and uh, live up to that. Uh, but, what, but, but Trump is coming, coming to Britain you know, at a time um, when May's government might be teetering. He's shown no compunction, not just no compunction, but every enthusiasm to kick Merkel's government when it's down and to try and um, do what he can to, to um, cause the collapse of her coalition. Uh, he's shown no compunction about uh, backing, using his ambassador in Germany to back populist forces across Europe, Bannon, you know, um, traveling from capital to capital, including Britain, um, where he's, you know, close with UKIP. They're going to try and, um, the Brexiteers are going to try and bring down um, May. That's a question of timing. Uh, the um, question for me is whether Trump will do anything when he's there. Um, to encourage that process or when he leaves, more to the point, because I don't think he ever does brave things to people's faces. Uh, he's not going to London because of um, what Corey was talking about, the mass protests that are being arranged um, there. Um, but the protesters are arranging to turn up everywhere else he's going to be, which includes Blenheim Palace. For some reason, the Churchill family home yeah. is going to is going to be um, the venue for a, a grand dinner on Thursday or Friday night. He's going to his golf course in Scotland. They're going to turn up there with giant inflatable diapered trumps, um, really wherever he goes. So he, he can he can avoid London, but but he, he can't avoid he can't avoid, I think, what is probably a pretty strong national consensus of 75% or so who, who really despise Trump. And this isn't anti-Americanism. Um, yeah, that's what that's what makes it so funny, right? That it's actually not anti-Americanism. It's the right way to 
confront um, corruption and creeping authoritarianism is ridicule. It's actually Mel Brooks' um, logic behind making the play the producers. Same logic. You cut it down to size by ridicule. But, well, Rosa, you're a constitutional scholar. Is there a requirement in the Constitution for everybody to have a giant inflatable Trump baby in diapers? And if there is... (laughs) And if there is not, could there be? There could be. I I think the time is ripe for uh, an amendment (laughs) process. Um, And I think we might just have the requisite uh, majorities necessary to get that amendment through. But I I actually would. Yeah, go on. I just wanted to ask Ed to talk a little bit more about something he touched on only briefly, which is what the heck is happening to the British government? (laughs) Um, and is, you yes. know, is the British government going to collapse if it what is that for us Americans? I mean, if you know, we think to ourselves, oh, if only the government actually could collapse, if we could collapse, <laughs> right. how great would that be? But we don't have that kind of system here where you get to have no confidence votes and call new elections and things like that. Sadly, we're stuck until 2020. But but you guys, you guys, uh, as far as I can tell, can do whatever you want. What's going to happen? Well, let, uh, let me before before you sure. answer that, Ed. Um, first of all, by, by the way, in terms of the giant inflatable babies, I have been reading that the giant inflatable <laughs> babies may actually go on tour. <laughs> that they're they're going to like send them around the world. But with with respect to to uh, Are Rosa's the giant inflatable babies, breastfed or bottle fed? The, uh, well, I feel like it's a great band name. Giant inflatable babies, <laughs> giant inflatable Trump babies. But I was reading in, you know, The Guardian, which is where, you know, Americans go to read about England, I guess. And and the I was reading a quote uh, after they read the FT. Right. But I was re- I was re- exactly. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, sorry. I was reading. <laughs> never mind. But I was reading a quote from the shadow health secretary, Justin Matters, who started by saying Jeremy Hunt, who's the new foreign secretary, has overseen the worst collapse in patient standards of any health secretary in the history of the NHS. And it goes on, et cetera, et cetera. But then it gets down to an end here. And it says, Theresa May should call an end to this shambolic farce. And I was like, wait a minute. Everybody in England says shambolic. This is not some special Ed Luce thing. Everybody is calling everybody. Although you said omni shambolic, didn't you? Was that wasn't that? And, and I, I also took great delight in saying clusterfuck. Oh yeah, no, well, we all love it when you say stuff like that. Um, in any event, I was just following up on roses by saying it is pretty shambolic at the moment. No, Ed. It, it is shambolic. Shambolic I mean, is such a great British word. It's a good word. Uh, it's it, I, I have to agree with that, and it should be used more often. Uh, and and it, it, it's an appropriate, it's very appropriate to use it this week because um, we've seen now over two years Britain attempting, well, not Britain, the Conservative Party under May attempting to agree what the negotiating position will be. And finally, she gets the cabinet to agree um, over the weekend. And uh, then, you know, her Brexit secretary, her foreign secretary and junior junior people under all just leave the government because they can't, in inverted commas, in good conscience, uh, defend this negotiating um, position. So I think what we're, we're in a very paradoxical situation where May's probably going to be challenged. Her, or, you know, her, her position is very wobbly. You're, it only takes 15 percent 
of Conservative members of Parliament to sign a petition that will enable a leadership challenge and therefore a prime ministerial challenge. If she is toppled, there will have to be a general election because uh, she was at the head of the party that was elected, uh, not whoever replaces her. If there's a general election, we could see Jeremy Corbyn um, as the next prime God, minister. Jesus. Or we Switch. could see whatever, whatever Brexiteer replaces her, you know, God help us, Boris Johnson. Hey, Boris Johnson. Michael <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. So who would you rather have, Corey? Would you rather have <laughs> Boris Johnson or would you rather have Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> okay. For those people not in the sisterhood, Rosa is citing one of the very best passages of the novel Bridget, Bridget Jones' Diary, in which a... <laughs> A couple is discussing if, oh, God, you had to sleep with one member of the, of the conservative government in Britain, who would it be? And the one person they come up with is somebody who has an amazing wife, so he must have some talent that's not in evidence in the doing of his job, because otherwise, because based on his public persona, this incredible woman should never have the time of day for him. So, so that's and, and there's that other game. Who would you sleep uh, with, yes. kill, or marry? <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so let's um, play. So uh, Corbin, <laughs> Boris, or Theresa May. Kill, Ooh. kill, kill. <laughs> yes, <laughs> You're not allowed to kill them all. <laughs> what? You can only kill one. Uh, I don't so know. So I noticed, my friends, that the American Enterprise Institute is hosting its big, splashy annual dinner on September 13th, and Boris Johnson is to be honored at it. Oh, wow. Just that's just, you know, I got to say, none of these, I mean, we're laughing, but but none of these people are as bad as Trump. Uh, but True. it 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 there we are sort of dancing around one portion of this thing, uh, which is it does seem like there is a bit of a brewing scandal in the UK that the Russians really put a heavy thumb on the scale with regard to the Brexit vote. Is it possible that th this we just call a do over? I wish we could do that here. We can't. But on the Brexit vote, I think it's possible to call a do over. And if this thing spins much further out of control and that investigation gets any further, do you think it's possible that the British people will say, let's go back to the drawing board on this? Anybody who's. That's you, Ed. Um, well, I hope so. I mean, I think um, the paradox of this situation is that we are closest we've ever been to a, a hard, bre a no-deal Brexit, where Britain leaves without any access to the European market or any international agreements, and a reversal of Brexit. It's, it's a highly, highly um, volatile situation that could produce very radical and radically opposite outcomes. What's what's your sense at this point of, you know, if the referendum on Brexit were held all over again tomorrow, uh, hypothetically, you know, where, where would the vote come out? Uh, I, you know, you look at polls and they say marginally it would be in favor of staying in the European Union. Um, and, you know, you have to hope that that's true. But though that's what polls said in the build up to the right. last referendum. So, I, you know, I don't trust polls. Right, right. Um, yeah, right. That, that, that was, I remember going to bed and thinking, oh, well, this will be fine. But that well, happened. we're still in recovery from the, the great New York Times 
Clinton Trump barometer needle, which is you know left that stuff is all with bad nightmares. Right. So, but so so let's just sort of play this out a little bit. Trump goes to Brussels, a city which he called a shithole or something like that. He didn't he didn't <laughs> like it. Goes off and meets with these people he insulted a month ago, and that he started insulting again. Maybe they're on good behavior, but it's going to be tense. It's not going to be a love-in, right? I think we can all agree to that. And then he goes to the UK for 24 hours of meetings where their cameras will all be on the protests and the inflatable babies and not really on any outcomes because there can't be any outcomes because Theresa May's government is in complete disarray. Um, And then he's going to play golf for the weekend in Scotland. What could go wrong with that? More protests? I guess more protests, right? I Bad mean, golf game. Yeah, sh- sh- shots. And, and yet more of the seedy corruption using political office for personal enrichment. That's one of the most distasteful elements. It does, however, the Trump re- re- era. it does, however, remind us of the fact that his mother left Scotland as an immigrant when she was eighteen years old, um, which reminds us of some other stories that are you know going on here um maybe you know so so there's that and then you know ed has a fantasy that he he jets off to moscow for the world cup final um but and then he goes to where he sits next to boris johnson at the at the final which england who who does Trump root Actually, for? Can I they elaborate? come down zip lines together. Can I elaborate <laughs> on that fantasy briefly? That Belgium is in the final and Belgium wins, and Belgium's team is almost all immigrant. Yeah, well. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, well, that's I kind of like the, I kind of like that storyline. I I Belgium is is the I think it's the best team in there right now, apart but, from England, totally. It's, um, it's 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 one of the four best for sure. Okay, guys, one. if you keep this up, I'm going to talk about the Cardinals Giants series my dad and I watched together this weekend. Oh, that's nice. Did you actually go to the games? Of course. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And was it, it was a re- good, rewarding fabulous. experience for? You? Oh, well, that's good. Fabulous <laughs> to sit in AT and T Park and watch a couple of good pitchered stools. And also, my Cardinals win on Martinez's wonderful pitching, an 11-2 to blowout. So, Pete Lucier, if you're listening to this, there you go. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, so let, let me go back to you, Rosa. We, we just sort of, I, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. My guess is that the Europeans are going to try to avoid having a really nasty NATO meeting, but it's going to be chilly. My guess is Theresa May is going to try to, avoid having a really nasty Trump visit, but it's going to be very tense given the environment. Um, and it, so he's not going to be a happy camper by the time he arrives at the meeting. I don't know. With Putin. He might be a happy camper. He likes insulting people. He likes being the bull in the China shop. He enjoys that. It, it clearly energizes him. So he may be a happy fellow after, you know, if he can insult a whole lot of namby-pamby Europeans, uh, in a few short days, he may be a very happy guy heading to Moscow. Uh, okay, well, that's a possibility. But I was I was getting at the fact that I think he's going to have a fairly tense week this week. And then when he gets to the meeting with Putin, it's going to be quite um, buddy-buddy, relaxed, yeah, one-on-one. Right. And, and that the vibe is going to, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit, 
I don't know. Should we expect a replay of this Singapore thing, which turned out so great? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I think you're right. Whether he whether he goes to Moscow in a in a grumpy mood because the Europeans were mean to him, or in a happy mood because he successfully insulted the Europeans, um, either way, he's going to be welcomed with open arms by by Putin. Um, who knows how to put on a go good show. And I think that Putin, like autocrats uh, elsewhere in the world, completely has got Trump's number. Um, you know, they don't need to have the, the goods on him for blackmail purposes, although who knows, maybe they'd have that too. But I don't think they need that in order to control him because I think Putin's got him figured out psychologically. Um, and they will, you know, uh, do manly things together and they will talk about how namby-pamby the Europeans are and how nobody ever really, you know, really understands the, the burdens uh, the, the, uh, on great men. Uh, and of, everything of, being, will... of being manly. <clears throat> yeah. They'll no, just no, say no. they're so people there. understand those burdens. Right. This will be the, the testosterone version of Yalta. Mm -hmm. And they'll just be sitting there going... And I have so much testosterone, it's a real burden on me. It's you know, hard to The real to be a man. question, obviously, um, it would be bad enough if he just has a substance free meeting with Putin and there's lots of good press for Putin and Trump reiterates what a great guy he thinks Putin is. And that would be bad enough, right? If there's no actual substance. I think obviously the. The, the fear uh, that, that people have is that Trump could do a little bit more, you know, a few more giveaways. He could say, oh, Crimea, you know, it's yours, Vladimir. Uh, you know, don't let those silly Europeans stand in your way. I agree it's yours. You know, he could do all kinds of really nefarious things if he if he is in the right or the wrong mood, obviously, depending on your perspective. And obviously, I think from the Russian perspective, if they can work him into a mood where he will say something that, you know, from the perspective of, of basically every other American administration uh, until the Trump administration would be very much against our interests, that they will they will regard that as an even bigger victory. And that's the thing. I mean, I mean, from from the Russian perspective, even if nothing happens except some, you know, loving photo ops, they win. Uh, and there are very few, there are very few outcomes of a Trump visit to Moscow that I think could be imagined to be good for the rest of the world, anybody other than Russia. Uh, so, Corey, what are your expectations for this testosterone-infused <laughs> Putin? And does it matter if it's in Helsinki or Moscow with a triumphant <laughs> Boris Johnson? Well, that's that's right. It's 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 yeah, right. I wanted to point out that it was going to be in Helsinki. I, can say, I absolutely agree with the descriptions that David and Rosa have already given. Let me just say that given that it is happening in Helsinki, I desperately, desperately do not want the visual of them at a sauna together. Ooh. Oh, I Murray, like that. You can't say these things because every time you say these things, you know what happens. Oh no, <laughs> I like I like this. I like them sort of going out of the sauna, diving into the icy oh, water. And, and then somebody creates that image on Twitter and we all have to look at it. And then, and then Putin looks at Trump and says, do you know what I'm supposed to do with this birch switch? <laughs> Thank you for not going immediately to the Seinfeld reference, David. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, that's, you're welcome. You're, you're, you're welcome. But it, it, it does seem likely that the outcome of the Trump-Putin meeting um, is going to be awkward at best. 
um, and it could be worse. What, what, Ed, what, what, what would be, what would be like a bad but pop plausible outcome of that meeting? Well, I, I was uh, ten days ago in Helsinki for um, this this quite interesting annual conference called the Northern Lights Conference, and and a lot of Nordic leaders there, and I spoke to a few of them, and of course, were that was it all like in a sauna? I just. Sadly, none of it was. Um, although I, I did almost fall backwards into the Baltic at one point, um, uh, but the, uh, which is very chilly, I have to say, even in midsummer. Uh, but the um, you know their fear is um, that the Finlandization of Ukraine is going to happen. Um, that it's essentially um, you know going to be taken off the table, um, and that then the sort of the daily stuff that they live with, in, you know, in terms of Russian hybrid warfare uh, in the Baltic states, uh, but also in, in, in the Nordic countries as well, is going to just be emboldened um, by this. And that it doesn't need to be anything very dramatic. I mean, we do have other more dramatic things being aired, um, uh, such as the reduction of um, U.S. military presence in Germany. Um, you know, we have all kinds of sort of fake trade-offs that Trump and Putin can make on um, Ukraine and Syria. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it, it, I, I agree pretty much entirely with what Corey and Rosa and you, David, have said, and, and in particular what Rosa said about nothing need happen uh, or we need, we need know of nothing that happened in their one-to-one -one meeting before the bilateral um, for it to be a Putin victory. And I should quote here, although I you know, really hate to do so, but I should quote Boris Johnson. There are, no <laughs> there are no disasters, only opportunities, and indeed opportunities for fresh disasters. Well, there are. And I, and I could just see you know, them having a good meeting and Putin going, you know, I love it when you sign things at the end of these meetings. Here, sign this. And then Trump just signs it, and it's the molotov Ribbentrop Pact. And, <laughs> and it's a contract. <laughs> it's repurposed. Okay. It sounds like I'm laughing, but I'm actually crying. <laughs> yeah, right. that's, I have that problem a lot these days. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it, part of the problem with the Putin meeting is that the 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 biggest downside of the meeting happens because of the meeting. It's a little bit like the Kim Jong Un meeting. You know, this past week, two people died of Russian nerve gas in the UK. Trump said nothing. An, a Russian Putin critic was strangled in his apartment in London. Trump said nothing. Uh, Ukraine continues to be a problem. The Russians. Uh, continue to be trying to manipulate the U.S. election elections in Europe. Trump said nothing. Simply by going and meeting with this dude, it's bad. By going and meeting with this dude and treating him better than he treats our real allies right after he was with our real allies makes it much worse. Even if they do nothing, isn't that bad enough? Yes, that is bad enough. <laughs> Boris, bad enough. Um <laughs> And Natasha, no goodness. Exactly. They were my favorites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's no. big problem. Oh, I like this. Oh, now come on. I had no idea that Corey could do the Natasha um, no goodness accent like that. Um, do you know what we're talking about, Ed? Uh, I'm, I'm 
chuckling along as if I do, so please don't call me. <laughs> yeah, it's, my, it's the knowing laugh I have for when people start talking NFL strategy. So, hi, yeah, yeah. By the way, did your Cardinals game go to penalties, Corey? Oh, jeez. <laughs> as the very, very great Baltimore Orioles skipper once said, the reason that baseball is the best sport there is is because you cannot run out the clock. You've got to let the man stand at the plate and you've got to throw the goddamn ball over the plate. Yeah. Like so so that's no, Ed. I like no. that. Yeah, well, that's... I do want to point out, Ed, what I would encourage you to do is to go look up Boris and Natasha as part of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, because you will learn more about current American politics from watching Boris and Natasha than you will from watching <laughs> hours and hours of talk television. Um, and this was the pinnacle of American cartooning. The Rocky and Bullwinkle show oh, was, it was so wonderful. It, it yeah. was a, it was as good as it gets. I hate to plead my ignorance, but I, I will shortly not be ignorant because I'm going to take your advice and look up Boris and Natasha. Right. Uh, I'll so be available. For, I'll and be available to answer questions on it uh, in the next deep state. And podcast. the next Ed, deep. Ed, you and I are too young for this. It's, it's old, old people like David and Corey know about this. Oh Jesus! Thank you, Rosa, for bracketing me with you. <laughs> I wish it were true. I wish it. I wish it were true. And by the way, uh, Rosa, there's this Barbarians. thing. There's it's this, not age; it's barbarism. And there's this thing called YouTube. By the way, it's newfangled. It's all on there. But I expect on the next episode that Ed will refer to Rosa and Corey as moose and squirrel. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm super I'm happy to be either moose or squirrel. Uh, yeah, no, they're both they're both super high quality. Um, let me just continue this just one brief minute longer because, in addition to the coming not so slow motion train wreck of the week ahead, um, we have had some news out of Pyongyang um, about. Uh, the visit of Mike Pompeo uh, uh, to that country and his snub by the leader and his version of productive talks while the North Koreans, I believe, referred to the U.S. as using gangster tactics. And I just thought it required a comment from each of us on um, how right we all were in our assessment of Singapore and that meeting. Um <laughs> And and what what kind of a sort of prequel this interaction is for the week ahead, Rosa? Maybe you want to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, David. I feel like you're 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 trying to lead me somewhere, but I'm not sure where. I'm no, no. There. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, you've get, Trump is leaving for this meeting. With his last big triumph, not looking like oh, such a yes. triumph. Oh, yes, I see, I see. So you're <laughs> suggesting to us that oh, Jesus. last time... This Trump is the spontaneity everybody loves about this show. 
<laughs> and he declared victory, even though nothing really happened, and it immediately unraveled. And but he still declares victory that we might see a repeat of that playbook. I think you're very likely right. Oh, need the playbook. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way. What a good point. Um. <laughs> Glad to be able to help. <laughs> Corey, do you have anything spontaneous to say? <laughs> David, you are exactly right. No, no. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Seems so unlikely. Um, since Sanger is not here, didn't you just do an event with Sanger? So, by the, by the way, can I just say that David Sanger graced Arendelle House here at the Double oh. today? and gave a fantastic talk on his new book on cyber and a whole passel of deep state radio nerds showed up for it. And David and I have a picture we are gonna send to you of us saying we're ready to record now. <laughs> I know what? it will please you uh, though, fearless leader, that his suitcase did not arrive with him. So he had to oh, go. Oh, what to did the... he wear? What was he wearing? <laughs> oh no, his silk kimono. Was he wearing? Oh, Rosa. Was he wearing like one of those sweatsuits that people fly in? And did he look like <laughs> Big Pussy from uh, from The Sopranos? Oh, I get that reference. <laughs> Thank you. I know. I I knew we'd find one. You get. I was gonna go. I was gonna go to, you know, something. Uh, you know, Victorian oh, next, but. Could you not? What? I would go there to Victoria. Went, okay, here. David Sanger went to the British Museum, bought a William Morris acanthus patterned silk tie, and looked really styling here. Seems none of those things actually lead us to that conclusion, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> For for once, Boris Johnson was not the worst dressed man in London, uh, which is <laughs> which is a real problem. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that David had a productive um, uh, stay there. The the one last thing that I would like to point out just before we go, and we've sort of covered a lot of ground here, but it's worth it. Ed, you wrote an interesting piece about the nature of the Republican Party um, that I thought we should direct people to, and I perhaps you could describe what you said. Um, recently? Yeah, you were talking about um, uh, the, the Nazis in the party. Oh, the, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was actually, I was actually recommending a piece that- Right, um, right, that's what I was that, uh, that appeared in Fox um, uh, today, which is Monday, July the 9th, um, about the number of Republican candidates mostly in Nohopa districts and state seats, et cetera, um, who are running, who are overtly, openly, uh, not just white supremacists, but Holocaust denying. Uh, it's now, it now totals five. Vox has been doing very good reporting. It now totals five, um, uh, you know, as opposed to zero in terms of Holocaust denial um, in previous cycles. And, you know, the, the, the trope is, as it always has been from... Uh, from since the Second World War ended, the trope is amongst Holocaust deniers that the Holocaust was fake news. Um, so I, I, I picked up on this piece because although these are these are no hope districts, these people are running under the Republican banner. Um, they have been elected by the Republican base. 
And they're using fake news. To me, this is why Trump is the thin end of a, a very non-comical wedge. Once you start distrusting everything, um, uh, then you can believe anything. As, as, um, as, as Tim Snyder said, um, post-truth is pre-fascist. And I think we should really keep an eye on these trends. They're, 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 they're not a joke any longer. This isn't fringe news. I agree. I absolutely agree. Ed is exactly right. Rosa, last word. Corey and Ed are exactly right. Wow. Wow. This kind of harmony is really moving. We try to set a model for others in the world. In this in this terribly divisive world here on Deep State Not Radio. Not hard to come together <laughs> against Nazis. Right. Uh, the, the bar is low, um, and none of us support pre-fascism or actual fascism. Y- yes, I think we are against pre-fascism, fascism, but in favor of post-fascism. And we're going to have a little break from fascism this week while we send Donald Trump off to Europe. Um, and uh, enjoy him, Corey. Uh, have, a, have a blast. He's, he's all yours. And um, we'll see, you know, we're going to... Do another episode a little later in the week after the uh, NATO summit has taken place. And once he's successfully settled himself into the UK. Uh, and so we'll do an update on this. We're going to try to keep things fresh this week. Um, but in the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Deep State Nerds Everywhere. Thank you, David Sanger's Acanthus, William Morris Tye. <laughs> Uh, And most of all, thank you, fabricators of the giant inflatable baby Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Our symbol for the week. Um, All right. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.